But on that note, we're going to be in the book of First Thessalonians this morning, chapter 2. If you brought your Bible with you, I would go ahead and encourage you to turn there. If not, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point in the sermon. We are in our second week of our study through the book of First Thessalonians, a study we're calling the Church on Mission, uh, looking at Paul's words uh, to this particular church in Thessalonica. Uh, and we started last week by going throughout the whole of chapter 1 uh, and looking at Paul's joy um, as he recounted his time with the Thessalonians, uh, as he uh, heard reports of them from other people, uh, to the point that every time that he thought of them, he gave praise to God. Every time he thought of them, he gave thanks to the God who allowed him to meet them in the first place. And it reminded me, and hopefully you last week, of, of people in our lives, in your life, in my life, that uh, every time you think of them, you can't help but smile. Someone who literally brings a smile to your face when you think of their name or you think of particular memories with them. Those were the kind of memories that Paul had of the Thessalonians, of the Christians in Thessalonica. Even though they had difficult times, uh, not necessarily with each other, but certainly with those around, as we'll see a little bit more of today in chapter 2, there was still that sense of joy over what God had done in Thessalonica and what God was continuing to do even after Paul had left. And as we thought about that idea, we began to ask ourselves the question of what are we known for? Are we known as a church on mission, mission like the church in Thessalonica? Are we known as a people who are about God and people, about loving God, loving people, loving the least of these? What are we known for in our own context, both each of us individually as well as all of us together as a church body? How are we known and what are we known for? And we kind of ended last week with that thought, with that question that I wanted you all to ponder. Again, on your own and collectively as a body, what are we known for? And if the answer is we're known for the love of Christ, we're known for performing the love of Christ amongst each other as well as to the community around us, then we continue in that. But perhaps if that's not always the answer, what steps do we need to take to be known for that? Knowing that sometimes in any circumstance in this world today, there will always be people who come against, there will always be detractors. But are we known for, even in spite of what others might say or think, are we known for a people motivated in every situation by the love of Christ? And if not, what do we need to do to step in to that kind of reputation? What do we need to do to be a people who are known for that? And as we continue to think about this idea, maybe one of the things that we can do to make sure that what we are known for is the mission of Christ, the love of Jesus, is to give people the gospel, but to do so by giving them ourselves. And this is kind of what Paul gets at in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. I've told you before that when I was fresh out of high school, 18 years old, uh, to about the time I was 20 years old, freshly 20, um, I served a couple of years as the youth pastor at the church that I grew up in. Uh, and as such, I got to, as summer and thinking about summer camps, uh, I got to take uh, our group to a couple of different summer camps. And one that we went to 
uh, was in the Denver area. I think it was the first one uh, that I took the group to. So I was freshly out of high school. Uh, it was like, you know, the, uh, June or July after the May that I had graduated. Um, and so we went and it was, uh, it was a hybrid camp. And what I mean by hybrid uh, is it was, it was part youth camp, part mission trip. Uh, whereas any of you who have been on any kind of church youth camp, you know that you have your youth camp stuff, you know, your worship in the morning and in the evening, Bible studies, group times, those sorts of things were in that camp. But during a normal youth camp, during the day, you would have different activities. You would have recreation, or in some cases, uh, you might go to a particular study, like learning more about a particular book of the Bible, a particular doctrine, or a cultural issue, or anything like that. And this particular camp, during those times of, that were normally filled with those activities, we would go out into the surrounding community, which was, again, the Denver area. We were at Colorado Christian University, and we would go do hands-on mission work. And I don't remember everything that the group that I was with did, but I remember a couple of things. I remember the last thing that we did on the last day that we were together, which was probably Thursday before we drove back on Friday, or Friday before we drove back on Saturday. I remember that the whole group, the whole camp, went to the biggest park, I think the biggest park in the Denver area, uh, and we had bag lunches, sack lunches that somebody had already prepared, and we took them out and gave them to a fairly large homeless population that was in uh, the park there in Denver. Uh, we would just go hand people the mills. We were encouraged to strike up conversation. Uh, we went in groups and did that. And I remember, even though I'm not, uh, at the time especially, but still today a little bit, I'm not, it uh, doesn't come naturally to strike up a conversation with a complete stranger. I remember being invigorated by that time. Uh, I remember being excited about those interactions. I can still remember sitting on the grass in the cool Denver air, talking with one gentleman in particular uh, as he ate the meal that we had given him. I, I was excited about that opportunity. Um, if you've ever been in that kind of situation where you know you're about to have to step out of your comfort zone and you're worried about it and you're nervous about it, but then when you do, there's this sense of adrenaline, there's this sense of euphoria might be too strong of a word, but certainly a sense of joy as, as God uses you and as you find out it's not nearly as scary as you thought it might be. This was the way that I felt after that. But I didn't feel that way a couple of days prior when our mission job was to go into a local nursing home there in the area and we were just to be with the patients, uh, the, the residents there in the nursing home. And the, the lady who was leading our group, who actually worked for the camp that we were with, she took her guitar, and she was singing praise and worship songs, and we were singing together, just spending time with the residents. And then somebody from the nursing home came up from the back and whispered something into her ear, and then she came over to a few of us and said, hey, there's another part of this nursing home, another wing that's just for dementia patients, uh, and she is asking if we would go into that wing and actually be and sing with those people. Now, as a leader, I was one of the ones that got volunteered for that. Uh, and so we went over there and we were singing with these residents. And I've, I've told many of you this story before, but it, was, it wasn't nearly as exciting from my point of view. Uh, it wasn't nearly as immediately energy-giving uh, and it was something that, even though I was indeed, again, stepping outside of my comfort zone, it didn't come immediately back with that sense of joy. And, and I began to wonder why that was so. It was very uncomfortable for me. Um, literally everyone that we were with had some form of dementia, so there was that issue, that problem going on. 
And there were some that were making noises. There were some, there was one in particular that couldn't talk and all that came out was a growl and he was reaching out for someone's hand, uh, shook his hand thinking that's what he wanted and then he wouldn't let go. And it was that kind of, that you didn't know what to do. You didn't know what to say, didn't know how to respond, especially as an 18-year-old youth minister thinking that it was his job to lead others in that path. I had no idea what to do and so it wasn't nearly as invigorating. And it made me realize that, especially reflecting upon it years later, that it's much easier to give people my money or an object that I possess than it is to actually give them my time. You know, because in in those situations where we can just hand someone to somebody and then walk away, whether it's a sack lunch or it's a a few dollars uh, or it's uh, anything else that we might give to someone, there is that sense of joy that comes with that, that sense that can, that joy that can lead to prideful joy where we're patting ourselves on the back for how awesome people we are, and then we walk away not thinking anymore about the situation. I was unable to do that when someone is requiring your time, not an object that you possess. Not that it's bad to give money or possessions, that is indeed a good thing, even a spiritual gift, the gift of giving, but... To actually give of ourselves is something that requires a little more and something certainly that I believe Christ would have us do in our world today. Why is it so hard to give others our time? Our fast-paced world where time is at a premium certainly doesn't make anything easier. But I believe that to give someone your time is to give them, especially in our fast-paced culture, is to give them a piece of yourself. I give who you are. Because you and I both know that we only have so much time on this planet. And you and I both know, especially if you're involved in a, in a, in a demanding job and you're busy with family and you're busy with everything that you might be busy with because we're all busy in our world today. There's only so much time in any given day on top of that. And to give someone a chunk of that time is to give them a piece of yourself. Paul did that repeatedly throughout his time that he spent with people in the first century world. And he certainly did that with the Thessalonians, as we'll see him say here in just a moment in chapter 2. But the question or, or the thought I want to imprint on your mind this morning is that if you want to give someone Jesus, start with giving them yourself. You want to give somebody Jesus? Good. Start with giving them yourself. Let's pray together before we read the passage. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us yourself through your Son. God, that your faithfulness is so great that you came to us despite the fact that we do not deserve you and that you literally gave yourself upon a cross for our sake. And God, even as we are thankful for that, we are reminded that you've called us to walk in the same way for the rest of the world. So God, I pray now that you would show us how to do that through your word. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would remove distractions from our minds and from our hearts. God, that you would allow us to dwell in your presence at this time. And again, God, even through your spirit, you give yourself to us in this very moment. God, may you give me the ability to communicate your word and your word alone. And God, may we hear what you have to say in such a way that we can implant it within ourselves and allow your word and your spirit to transform us from the inside out. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. 
Again, this is Paul's words to the Thessalonians. In chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul mentions at the beginning of this chapter that they were shamefully, he and his traveling companions were shamefully treated at Philippi. You'll find the story that corresponds with what he's talking about in Acts chapter 16, Just prior to the group's trip to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas were stripped, beaten, and jailed while in Philippi, in part because they had cast an unclean spirit out of a fortune teller, a woman who was making money for people by her ability to tell tell whatever she was telling. And Paul cast that spirit out of her, and people got upset that their money was being taken away or their source of income. And so they immediately stirred up conflict against Paul and Silas, and that is how they were treated. Again, stripped, beaten, and jailed. This is bad enough in itself, but it's even worse when you realize that Paul was a Roman citizen and he was supposed to be given due process, which he wasn't. And so this is how he left before he went into Thessalonica. And then in Thessalonica itself, there was also much conflict. This story is found in Acts chapter 17. Paul had great success At Thessalonica, when he went and began preaching, many came to faith, but not many of them were Jewish people. The Jews, amongst them, were angered by Paul's accomplishments. They were jealous by what Paul was actually doing and and the number of people that were coming to faith in Christ. And so, in their jealousy and in their anger, they led a mob through the city streets looking for Paul and the others with him. They couldn't find Paul, so they grabbed a man named Jason in whose house Paul had been staying, and they told the authorities about Paul and his traveling companions. This is the quote from Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, let's stop there for a second, and this isn't necessarily towards the point of the sermon, but it's, it's a point in Scripture, so we're going to cover it real quick. Just think of that idea. Just think of that reputation that Paul and his companions had. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What a great thing to be known for, flipping the world on its head. Because here's the reality of what's really going on. What Paul and Silas and the others are doing is not turning the world upside down. They're taking an upside world, introducing the message of Jesus Christ, and that message is turning the upside world right side up, right? Upside down world right side up. And so what Paul and his companions were known for is flipping everything on its head, showing a new way to live, giving a new message of love for God and love for people. This is how they themselves were known. 
Anyway, the people, the Jews who were leading this rebellion or this mob against Paul and his companions went on to claim that they were inciting rebellion against Rome, which was the way to get the Roman authorities to do something. And so the authorities find Jason, this man that they were staying with. It says that they, he gave them money. We assume there was a fine as security. It's the way it puts it in Acts 17. And they let him go. Paul and his companions left under the cover of night. And they moved on to a place named Berea. And again, Paul had success in Berea, even with many Jews this time believing in the truth of the gospel of Jesus. But the Jews in Thessalonica caught wind of Paul's actions in Berea, and they came and started trouble for him there as well, stirring up again a mob. And again, Paul and his companions had to leave for their own safety. So this was the situation that Paul is talking about. What's going on behind his words in the beginning of chapter 2? They had been in a difficult situation in Thessalonica, excuse me, been in a difficult situation in Philippi, and even after they had moved on to Thessalonica, difficulty followed them there as well. Opposition, especially amongst, amongst the religious people to the message of Jesus Christ, caused great problems, great conflict for Paul and his traveling companions who were sharing the gospel with him. And so Paul goes on in this difficult environment to ensure the Thessalonians that had faith that he had left behind, the church that was there, he goes on to ensure them of proper motives, making sure that they knew that he was here for the right reasons, that he wasn't there for personal gain. There was a need for this because in Paul's world at the time, there were many people who came preaching some sort of message but did it in order to gain profit, did it in order to gain something from people that is not Paul's goal. As you see throughout his words, his goal is not to gain, but to actually give himself away. Paul remarks that he and his traveling companions could have sought money or glory because they were apostles of Christ, but they did not because their goal was to please God and not men. You know, one whose goal it is to please people will say and do whatever is necessary to be liked Maybe you've known that. Maybe you have that problem yourself. This is something that God continually works on in me. I have a great desire to be liked. Maybe you can identify with that or maybe not. But if you can, you know that sometimes you are tempted. That little voice inside you telling you to do this or to soften this word or to to, to make this word a little stronger or to act this way to a particular person but not to somebody else who doesn't have any power so that you might be liked. This was not Paul and his companions' goal. This was not the way they operated. Because one whose goal it is to please God will say and do whatever necessary to convey the love of Jesus, whether it means being liked or being hated. And in Paul's case, it meant both. For many of the Thessalonians, those who came to faith in Jesus, the loving relationship that Paul and them developed was such that every time he thought of them, he, gave rejoic- he rejoiced and gave thanks to God. Whereas the Jews hated him so much that they literally ran him out of town. They ran him out of town because they wanted to punish him. They wanted to probably kill him if they could get their hands on him. If you're receiving the glory for working for Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Let me say that again. If you're receiving glory for working for Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Now, if somebody comes up and says, good job, say thank you and move on, there's nothing wrong with somebody saying you're doing well or noticing that you're doing good work. Uh, 
one pet peeve that I have for other ministers, and, and, and don't take this the wrong way, but anytime that somebody comes up and says, good job, I've, I've, I've gone up and said, good job to people, and they'll say, no, 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 it's all the Lord. Yeah, I know it's the Lord, buddy, but I want to say thank you for being used by God in that way. There's nothing wrong with just saying thank you and moving on, because that other thing can kind of come off as false modesty. But in reality, there should be a humility within us that even when we are given thanks, that we don't store that for ourselves. But rather, we take the thanks that anybody might be giving to us, and we make sure that in everything we do, we communicate that ultimately, that is God's. And we ourselves give that to God. Every time somebody says, good job, we should at some point later in the day fall on our knees and say, God, thank you for filling me with your spirit in such a way that it made a difference in somebody else's life. Giving thanks and glory to God. If you're receiving and holding on to the glory when you work for Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Paul and the others were motivated first by their love and obedience to God. Now, we're talking about giving ourselves away to people. But that can't be done without first giving ourselves away to God and to his mission. To love God and to love people. Those are the first and second greatest commandments. But the first is to love God. That's where it starts. The second one is like it, but it is still second. And that is to love people. Paul and the others were motivated first by their love and obedience to God and second by their love for the people. This love was expressed in the way that they gently approached the Thessalonians, so gentle that Paul uses perhaps the best metaphor that could be thought of when it comes to being gentle with someone. The metaphor of a, of a mother nursing her child. That's the metaphor that he uses for comparison. There's probably not a greater picture of gentle care in the world. Because for me, and this is fresh on my memory, like last night, fresh. For me, a crying baby, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to make a confession. A crying baby doesn't elicit a sense of empathy. It elicits a sense of pragmatism. How do I stop this? Right? Can I get an amen from any dads or any moms in the house? Right? How do I, what do I need to do to make this crying stop? Yes, I'm sad that this baby is crying, but ultimately I just want to make it stop. Can I get an amen? I'm, you're looking at me like you're concerned for my morality, but surely you identify with what I'm saying. What do I need to do to fix this situation? Maybe that's a man thing. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a human thing. But that's certainly what's comes up in my heart is how do I fix this? I don't get that, that feeling. I get that feeling sometimes from my wife, especially in the middle of the night when she's trying to sleep. But during the day, I don't get that feeling. Like she actually enjoys being needed so that she can bring, so that she can bring compassion, so that she can bring satisfaction to our childhood. It's been that way with all three of our boys. And this is the metaphor that Paul uses. So gentle with the Thessalonians that he compares it to a mother nursing her child. This is the way he cared for them. And again, it is that idea of giving of self. Not just some object, but giving of self and of time. Paul's words are effusive. Again, in the way that he goes almost over the top, expressing the way that he loves the Thessalonians. Saying, being affectionately desirous of you. Oh, to be able to put words together like Paul. Being affectionately desirous of you. 
Paul loved the people so deeply that as he said in the conclusion of, of, of what we read, that he didn't just want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, he wanted to share with them his very self. Hence, his willingness to deal with the difficulties recounted in Acts 16 and 17. Hence, his willingness to, after leaving, beaten and embarrassed from Philippi, he moved on to another town and shared the gospel when he knew that probably the same kind of people were waiting on him there. Hence, his willingness to, even after being run out of town by the Thessalonians, to want to go back, as you'll see at the end of this chapter, in chapter 2. So he was ran out of town out of fear for his own life. And at the end of chapter 2, he recounts about how desperately he wants to go back to them. That's how affectionately desirous of them he is. So much that, again, after he has difficulty in Thessalonica, he moves on to Berea. And even after his opponents in Thessalonica chase him to Berea and shut him down there, he moves on to another town to do the same thing. Because he is affectionately desirous both of God and the people to whom God called him to love. Paul loved people so deeply that he didn't just want to share the gospel with them, but also his very self. You want to give someone Jesus? Start with giving them yourself. Give yourself away. Giving ourselves to others is looking at our lives as gifts from God. That every moment that we have, every breath that we take, every second that we exist is a gift from God. A gift meant to be regifted, to be given away once again to those who would benefit from our time. Our time, when we share with them what God is doing in our lives, when we share with them the grace of the Holy Spirit that is within each one of us, looking at our lives in a way to give them away is looking at them as gifts from God. So you heard it here first, you really are God's gift to the world. Like you really are God's gift to the world. God created you because he loves you, and and God created you as an object of his love, but he also created you to gift you to the world. And when he recreated you in Jesus Christ, by Jesus coming within you, as Paul says in, in his, one of his letters to the Corinthians, that anyone who is in Christ is made new, that there's no old anymore, all of that has passed away, but to be in Jesus is to be a new creation. When God recreated you by allowing Jesus to permeate everything within your being, he did so in such a way to make you, in part, a gift to the world. You are God's gift to the world. All of your idiosyncrasies, all of your talents, all of your abilities, even maybe some of those things that you dislike about yourself, God bundled you together in that exact fashion in order to, again, in part, give you to the rest of the world. To give you to your spouse, to your children, to give you to your parents, to your community members, to the people that you share a cubicle with or that you work with in whatever capacity, to the people that you meet randomly throughout your day god created you god gifted you to the rest of the world and when we give ourselves away we are reminding ourselves that our lives are not our own we are reminding ourselves that we belong to somebody else 
and that we're here on somebody else's plan. Because guess what? Every second that you think is yours is really God that he's loaned you for a time. Every breath that you think is yours is really what God has put in you. Think again of the story in Genesis where God takes dirt from the ground and he breathes his spirit and his life into that dirt. And then that dirt becomes man. It is God's spirit within us that allows us to take a breath. It is God's spirit within us that sends the electrical impulses from our brain to our hearts that cause it to beat and pump blood throughout our entire body. It is God's spirit within us that allows the oxygen in our lung to turn into energy that we can use either for our own purposes or for God's purposes. Every second, every heartbeat, every moment of your existence is on loan from a God. They do not belong to you. Yes, he has given them to you. Yes, you should rejoice in them, but you should always remember that they are there for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to give yourself away to the rest of the world. All of us, again, have an account of time allotted to us. None of us know how much is in our account, but we certainly know that it is finite, that there is an end point. You probably already knew this, but unless Jesus comes back, none of us are getting out of here alive. Amen? We're going to pass from this life and into the next. And that moment is coming at some point for all of us. And again, we don't know how much. The only thing we do get to ponder, and we do get to have some say over, is how we will spend that time. You ever thought about that phrase, how you spend your time? Spend your time? Again, it's looking at it through a monetary lens. To spend your time. It's as if you're buying something with the time that you've been given. And so let me ask you a question. What are you buying with your time? What will you have to show when your time account reaches zero minutes, zero seconds? What will the payoff of your life be when the end comes? What if that payoff was seeing other people in the world around you give themselves to Jesus? That's what Paul's goal was in the time that he spent with the Thessalonians. So affectionately desirous of them he was that he wished not just to give them the gospel of Christ, but also to give him his very self, to give them his time, peace of himself. And if you look at the way that Paul communicates with each of the churches that he writes to in the New Testament, it's as if he left a piece of himself with each of them and the time that he spent with them and the effort Sweat, blood, and tears that he poured out for their sake. And they all bore his mark because of that. And that's why he was able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What are we known for? Are we known as a people who are willing to give ourselves away? You want to give somebody Jesus? Start with giving them yourself. So who might be Jesus calling you to give yourself to today? Our immediate reaction in this context, as we open the Bible and we sit in our pews, is to think that such a message from God would be given to move us to a new ministry, 
or to be on the, on the mission field somewhere else in the world or to do something big and bold. And he might indeed be doing that, but giving yourselves to others for the sake of Christ could also look like giving yourself to your family, giving yourself to your neighbor, like your actual neighbor, the one who lives next door or at the next address down the county road. That might be what it looks like. Because as I said earlier, it's easy for me to give someone money or an object that I possess. That's a lot easier than giving someone my time because I can, and maybe, again, you can identify. I could see a homeless person during the day, whether it's on the street or somewhere else, and give them a few dollars or give them a bag of food or, or, or you know, uh, things that they need. And I could pat myself on the back for it and feel good about myself on the drive home. And then when I get home, I go inside and I crash and I want to relax. And one of the boys comes up and they say, Daddy, 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 here's this or here's that. And my response might be, not now, buddy, Daddy is busy. And by busy, I mean, you know, busy, like looking at Facebook or texting someone or watching the television or just trying to decompress for five minutes. That's what I might mean by busy. Because it takes a lot more for me to get down in the midst of however tired I am that day, in the midst of all the frustrations of the day, and all of us deal with frustrations to varying degrees, and just being tired because we're so stinking busy in our culture today. It takes a lot more to say, you know what? I only have so much time and energy left today, and instead of using that to just relax or to veg out in front of whatever screen I want to veg out in front of, I'm going to give that to somebody. I'm going to get down on the floor, and I'm, I'm going to play with them. I'm going to have a long conversation on the phone with, with a parent or in person. I'm going to go see somebody that I know is alone, and, and I'm just going to give them a piece of myself. Not because I want, to make, I want to make them happy, but not because I want to make them like me. Because my desire is to please God. And God has called us to give ourselves away just as he gave himself away. So maybe you start in your own home, in your own relationships, in your own workplace. Maybe it means, again, especially in a busy workplace when you're trying to get from point A to point B and you're in a hurry and someone wants to stop and talk to you. I saw something just recently about a guy who was talking about the effect that these phones have on our culture. And he was saying that if you just have this out and you're walking around, what are people going to think is most important to you at the time? Even if you don't have it open, even if you have it closed like I do, they're going to think that this is more important than them. And so he talks about like a CEO or somebody walking through the halls of their, of their offices and, and somebody wants to stop and talk and they say, okay, what do you got? I got a few minutes. You still have this thing out. It says, put it away. Sit down. Talk with them for a minute. Yeah, I know you're busy, but give just a little bit of your time to somebody else, not because you want to make them likely like you, but because you know that Christ might have an appointment for you to share the gospel with them and the way that you might be able to share the gospel with them, perhaps for the first time that it would ever break through in their life because so many Christians have shared the gospel with them by just giving them a quick line and moving on or saying, I'll pray for you and not stopping and actually praying for them. Just giving lip service to the idea of the gospel may Maybe you would want to present the gospel to them so desperately. Maybe you would be so affectionately desirous of the people that God has put in your life that you would stop and in the name of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel of Jesus, give them yourself. 
Give them your time. Because that is the one thing that God gave you that you can always give away. That is the one thing that God gave you that you can always give away. And the one thing that will always make a difference in somebody else's life when you give of yourself, of your time. Are we known for that? Are you known for that? And if not, guess what? There's 24 hours tomorrow that you can give away in the name of Jesus Christ. Even if you're not known for it today. There's 48 hours before the end of Tuesday. 72 before Wednesday, and that's as far as my, mouth will, my, my math will allow me to go. Can I get an amen? What's 72 plus 24? 96. Okay, I'm not going to go any further because it's going to get bad real quick. But you know what I'm talking about. 24 hours in each day, and you have the opportunity to give some of that time away in the name of Jesus. No matter what else you have, you have time to give to others in the name of Jesus Christ. You want to know what a church on mission looks like? It looks like a group of people who are willing to take the time that Jesus gave them and to give it away, to re-gift it so that others might know that they are loved by Jesus and his church. This morning, during our time of invitation, I want to encourage you to think directly in your own life what this might mean. Who might God be calling you towards to give your time? to give a piece of yourself. Dwell with God in his spirit and allow him perhaps, even in these moments, to answer that question. If you need to pray about this or anything else, I will be down here to do that with you during our time of invitation. The altar will be open if you would like to pray there. And certainly, you can pray right where you're at because the Holy Spirit is with you, wanting to convene with you in these moments. Let's stand together. I'm gonna pray Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation. And again, you move in whatever way God is calling you to. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And God, we thank you again for giving us yourself, even in these moments through your spirit. God, may we find that contagious in the way that we behave. God, call each and every single follower that's in this room today. God, call us a certain direction to a particular person, a group of people, to give ourselves away as we give away the gospel of Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.